0: auspicious day to come visit us, auspicious enough that half the congregation has chosen to skip it, apparently, (laughs) Uh, but I'm glad that we sang that song, God Leads His Dear Children Along, because I can certainly testify that that is true. Yesterday was the 16th anniversary of the first time we ever met in this building as a public church. I love to tell the story. I love when strangers ask me about GCA, how we got here. I love to tell the story of God's providence. There are so many truly wonderful things that have happened to us over the last 16 years that nobody in this room can take any credit for. These are just the things that have happened because of God's kindness and God's goodness to us. We could not have predicted, when we went on the internet all those many years ago, we could not have predicted that we would end up having listeners all over the planet. We could not have predicted that those listeners were going to become as committed to GCA as they are. I think had we gone on to the internet with the intention that we were going to go find a worldwide audience, I don't think it would have worked because that would have been our effort, our plan. But because it was God's plan, we just decided to put it out there and see what happens. And then in the early days of our website, there was last week's message that would stay up all week and then we'd have to put up this week's message And last week's message would just disappear into the digital ether. You couldn't find it anymore. It had to be replaced by this week's message. And one day, a decade ago or something, I said to Jeff, well, what if we created like an archive site? Because I've still got all these MP3s. I've still got all this stuff. What if we created another site where we just put All our material and we just gave it away free and anybody who wanted to anywhere on the planet any time of day could dial up any amount of stuff they want for free and download it and take it with them and it's just theirs to listen to. And so we did. And now we get notes from people who say to us, I'm not up to date with you guys right now. I'm not caught up with your weekly messages. I haven't started 2 Corinthians with you yet, but I'm deep into the archive. And they're either in law versus grace or they're stuck somewhere in eschatology or they're or they're in the middle of the Luke series which is very long and I'm just so very very grateful because I don't just see God's providential hand of kindness in the fact that we have this building. And that we've been debt-free for years and years and years. And that we've been able to keep expanding and keep getting the things we need. When you all complained about the gray chairs, we went and got fancy purple chairs. Because we could. Okay, we didn't do it right away. I made you suffer the gray chairs for a while. But then we had a guest preacher, and I was here, and I sat in one of the gray chairs, And I said to Tom immediately, we need chairs. (laughs) The stories of when we moved in here, when this was just a converted house that was built by a retired general in a wheelchair who built a church and then died before he ever made his first payment. And the way that we... We're able to just buy this without a real estate agent, the way that we were able to just just make a deal and, and start making payments. And, and the bank should never have given us a loan, never, because banks are really worried about how many giving units you have, how many people do you have contributing to you week by week. We didn't have anywhere near enough giving units for them to give us a loan for this building. But because we own that property next door, which we bought for dirt because it is dirt, that property next door we bought with the intention that we were going to build on it. And then this became available, and suddenly we found out, and we came here, and we made the deal instantly. And suddenly we owned a building, and suddenly a bank agreed, for no good reason I can think of, financially really risky there was a bank that agreed to give us a loan so we could buy this building. Now, I love to tell this story, so I have to tell it again. In the midst of all those providential things happening, one day we came over here and we said, well, you know, the people are going to have to park over here on the grass, and what we really need is a parking lot. But we don't have a parking lot. All we have is grass. Everyone who's heard this story, talk amongst yourselves. (laughs) because I enjoy telling this story. It's a good story. I said, we we need a parking lot right out here, just some kind of gravel thing. Just, you know, how are we going to do that? Because we were really stretched monetarily at that point because we had just bought the building, and and so we didn't have the money to do that. So I'm driving down Hazelwood Drive one day, and I noticed that on our property out here, there's an industrial grader, and a couple of those cat graders, and they're all parked on our land. And my first thought was, what did Mike do? And then when I got over that, I left my card on the seat of the industrial grader, and I said, this is private property, and I put my phone number on it. Well, that afternoon, a fellow called me, and he said, I'm sorry, the town of Smyrna is putting in sidewalks all the way up and down Hazelwood. And so we've been using that machinery, but we couldn't find any place to park it. We saw your empty lot. We parked there. We didn't mean to park on private property. We'll remove the equipment right away. And I said, oh, oh, no. (laughs) No, don't do that. I need a parking lot. (laughs) And they said, OK, we'll do that. And next thing we know, gravel showing up, graders are going to work, and next thing we know, we've got a parking lot out there. Just the providence of God. If they had built sidewalks any other time, that doesn't happen. If we had taken it upon ourselves to find somebody to give us the money to do it ourselves, then it wouldn't matter that the machinery ended up on our property. But in God's good timing and good providence, he delivered us the heavy equipment we needed to have a parking lot and it was only parked on our land for about two weeks. And then that machinery was gone. But in the midst of that, we got the parking lot. I'll tell you another story I love. I've even told Bobby this story this morning. Because this has to do with Leon. He'll enjoy this. <laughs> you know, we, we knocked out every wall we could knock out here. There are just certain walls we can't go through like that one. There's nothing we can do about that that wall has to stay because the air conditioning unit, the plumbing, everything, things have to stay. So we knocked out everything we could knock out. We expanded everything we could expand. And you might recall that at one point, we had what was the garage done up nicely. And then we had a couple of doors here, like French doors that went out to that room. And so when people would sit out there, unless they sat right in the middle of the room, I couldn't see them, and they couldn't see us. But they would sit out there like overflow. We'd put some speakers back there and stuff, but it was, it was frustrating to me because they, they were back there. And so we had always been told there's no way that we can go through that wall. That's the load-bearing wall. We can't go through that wall. So for years, we dealt with, well, we can't go through that wall. And then one day, do you remember the man's name, Leon? I'm just reminiscing now. Huh? Was it Chuck? I think so. And you and he got up in the attic and crawled around and looked at everything. And the next week, Chuck came back with a, a model of our building made out of toothpicks. <laughs> and he said, that right there is your load-bearing wall right there. That's the roof right there. It's like a perfect little scale model of our building. He said, I believe I can go through that wall. I said, You can? (laughs) We've been told forever you can't do that. You think you can go through that wall? Okay. So, for two weeks, we met up at the Smyrna Assembly Hall, and Chuck and Leon did all the work, and they put a steel girder up across there, which is right above your head, Gladys. So, if it gives, you know. (laughs) I'm glad you're all prayed up. And suddenly we had, you know, 50 more seats of people that we could see. And just all of these things just providentially over the course of time happened. And then the most providential thing that's happened, I think, and the thing that I am most grateful for and the thing that I can't explain and sometimes can't believe is that you all showed up. And you keep showing up. That just makes me happy. I'm so impressed That for 16 years, you all have held the fort while we've been out there saying, this is God's sovereign grace. We're talking about a God who is sovereign, who is in charge, who elects the people that he saves, who is holy, who is mighty, who is in charge of everything that takes place in his universe. And that message simply is not heard in the church world as much as it ought to be. And we keep saying it and we keep saying it. One day, there was the pastor from the uh, Episcopal Church up the street. He called me and he said to me, Is it true you're really a sovereign grace church? And I said, Yeah, it says so on our sign. You know, it, it, we're really fooling people if we're not. He said, so you're, you're Calvinist. And I said, yes, we are. We're Calvinist. And he said, man, you must feel like a voice crying in the wilderness. <laughs> we got together for lunch one day. And he said, I believe everything you're saying. I just can't say it. And I thought, man, that's probably the saddest thing I've ever heard. To admit that the gospel of grace is right in the Bible... To admit that this is the truth and to say that for sake of my paycheck, I can't tell the truth. So here we are 16 years later, a voice still crying in the wilderness. We've seen churches come and go here in Smyrna. They start up the road at the school or they start at the YMCA or they they, they start somewhere. And then after a period of time, they seem to just go away. And I think the reason is because they're not saying anything that people can't get anywhere else. And so people go church hopping. People go out just trying to find some organization that has the programs that they want. And we just keep pounding the Bible. We just keep telling the truth according to God's word. And 16 years later, I've seen some churches that, like Life Point up the street, they built and they have become a megachurch during the time that we're here. And look around. It's still just us. And it's not because we're a closed society and it's not because we believe we three and no more. We welcome everybody. But... People want megachurch, and people want showbiz, and people want programs, and people want theology that does not make you think. They want theology that feels good to them. They want the theology that says, you're wonderful, and God loves you, and it doesn't matter how you live. When you die, you're going to heaven, because God is love, 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 which we heard this morning during prayer time is what the marshmallows say. Snowflakes, that's right. What the snowflakes say. I, w- I invented a marshmallow made out of snowflakes. Same thing. Yes. I'm just so very grateful, so I just wanted to take this couple of minutes to say, 16 years in, just thank you. And I am humbled to be called your pastor. But as long as I've got breath... And as long as one other person shows up here, which is Tom, (laughs) we're just going to keep saying it and saying it and saying it. And you know, God, again, providence, God made sure that we were financially secure and had no debt within a couple years of buying this building so that nobody could take anything away from us so that we could still show up here every week and tell the truth. Because nobody can do anything to us. And that was just God's way of setting us free. God's way of saying just tell the truth and whatever the slings and arrows are, you can withstand them. And uh, the slings and arrows have come over the last 16 years. But I find my comfort in the fact that God's word deserves a defense. And that's why I do what I do. And that's why I'm so very grateful that you all have let me do it.
1: Thank you, pastors. Amen.
0: Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If I carry on anymore, I'll get all weepy. So I'm not going to do that. Okay, so quick review. We're in the middle of chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. Paul is encouraging the folks in Corinth To put together an offering that he is planning to take to Jerusalem. He's going to talk about it more in chapter 9. But Paul has this way of writing that I find very humorous. Here's what I mean. He spends all of chapter 8 telling the Corinthians, now be prepared to give this offering. So that it's a gift of your own generosity. It's the grace of giving. And be ready so that when Titus comes, he's not embarrassed and I'm not embarrassed. Not to mention that you'll be embarrassed. And so be ready with your liberality by the time I get there in order to take your gift to Jerusalem, which will result in lots of praise and thanksgiving to you and thanksgiving to God. And then he starts chapter 9 by saying, then again, it's superfluous that I even bring this up. He's just spent an entire chapter convincing everybody that this is the right thing to do. And don't be embarrassed by it. And don't embarrass me by it. And then he starts chapter 9 with, for it's superfluous to me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. Really? Really? If it's that superfluous, would you have devoted two chapters to it? And that's because Paul knows, apparently, that these folks are a tad flighty. And that these folks can make promises and then not follow through. What did we see last week? He kept saying, it's not good enough to just intend to do it. You have to actually do it. Your good intentions aren't going to feed anybody. Your good intentions aren't putting clothes on anybody's back. You have to not only be ready to do it, but you have to actually do it. Now, in the midst of chapter 9... As he's continuing to talk about this superfluous topic, he's going to say a couple things that I have found essential to New Covenant, New Testament giving. And so we're going to talk about those verses when we get to them as well, because if you genuinely understand what Paul is saying and what theology lies behind the things that he is saying then you're going to understand Paul's entire theology of giving by grace. And giving by grace is yet another thing that seems to be missing from far too much of the church world. Has anybody here ever been in a church where you felt pressure to give? (laughs) That's pretty much everybody. Okay, Paul is very clear that every man is supposed to give according as he purposes in his heart. And then he is going to tell us the kind of person that God loves. It's one of the few places in the entire Bible where you find the eulogizing of a quality of a man that God appreciates. Because throughout the Bible, we hear things like we're maggots and we're worms and we're sinners and we're desperately depraved. And our heart is full of darkness. You read all these dark, dark things about us throughout the Bible. And here Paul is about to say, but this kind of person, God loves. And he says it within the context of giving. And if you know that, then that is going to inspire generosity based in grace and thankfulness as opposed to pressure. Pressure is never the approach to proper biblical giving which is why we don't pass a plate. Because you know that if you don't put a couple bucks in the plate, that the people on either side of you are looking at you like cheapskate. (laughs) You say you love GCA, but you don't really. Anyway, we'll get to all that. So we're going to start right in the middle of chapter 8, right at verse 12. But I'm going to start reading at verse 1 and try to read 1 through 11 without comment just for review so that we can get a running start when we get to verse 12. Thus ends the introduction, which includes my opening comments, all of which does not count against my time. I've got an hour starting now, okay? Okay. Jennifer Jennifer just gave me this. She went.
1: <laughs>
0: Do you see the kind of respect I get, Bobby? Do you see this?
1: Yeah.
0: That's right. And I want to know what the thunder said. All right, starting at verse 1, chapter 8. Let's read. Now, brethren we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Which are the churches of Macedonia? Thessalonica. Philippi. Philippi, The Berean church. So he's talking about the churches of Macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction and their abundance of joy and their deep Poverty overflowed in this wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Hold on to that phrase. Their generosity and their liberality was of their own accord. Paul did not pressure them into giving. Paul gave them an opportunity Paul argues that the Gentiles who have been brought to the faith owe the Jews a debt, but he didn't pressure anybody to give. So they gave of their own accord, and verse 4 fascinates me, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected... But they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of the Lord. Consequently, we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and all earnestness and in love that we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do, but also to desire. But now, finish doing it also. That just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. That's God amening his word. (laughs) For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to... ...to what he does not have. First giving principle for today. Notice that Paul just said... ...you give according to what you have... ...not according to what you don't have. Let me give you a quick example. Tom is going to relate to this entirely. When we were out in Los Angeles... ...where we were under tremendous pressure to give... ...the pastor held a banquet. He would hold them every once in a while... And you either had to pay him $1,000 to attend his banquet, or if it was a less expensive banquet, like the first one I ever attended before I was on staff there. He actually had a technique. He was very good at fundraising and proudly would tell you that he was one of the chief fundraisers in the country. And so what he did was... He had envelopes on every table, and after we had all eaten, he stood up and he told everybody what it was he was intending to buy and what he was intending to do, and what gave him the security to do this, and he talked about his financial dealings and all that kind of stuff. And then he said, now, everybody at every table, pick a captain of your table. Some guy at our table was picked as captain. He said, now take the envelope in the middle of your table and take it out and hand everybody else one of the forms that are in that envelope. So I passed the forms around. I get a form. And the form said, I pledge $1,000 to this project. And he named the project and stuff. And he said, I'm not asking for money today. I'm asking that you sign the form and commit yourself to doing it. And I didn't want to be the only guy at my table not doing that. So I signed my pledge and handed it in, and 1,000 dollars that I don't have. At the time, I was a working stiff in L.A. I, I don't have the1,000 bucks. So I went to the musicians' union, and I borrowed 1,000 dollars from the musicians' credit union so that I could keep my word and give him the money that I had said I would give him so that I didn't look bad. And then over the course of several months, I paid back the credit union with interest just so that I could give the $1,000. Okay, that is a good example of putting so much pressure on somebody to get money out of them that they end up giving from money that they don't have. And Paul is saying... That's not what I'm asking for. Paul is very clear that people should give out of what they have because, think about it from the large theological principle, God knows how much you have because he's the one that designated how much you have. And he knows where your heart is at. He knows that you can be giving $5 and that might be a huge sacrifice for you. Or you might be giving $5 and it's just a tip. That's less than you spent on lunch today. God knows that. God knows if you bought a pair of shoes for $80 and you tipped God $3. He knows the difference. You're not fooling him. But what he expects from you is that you will give generously to his people, to his work, to the gospel, to people who have needs... And that you will do it out of the abundance of your heart, out of your generosity, and out of what he has given you. Let me show you a real obvious example of that. You're all going to be familiar with this story. Turn to Mark 12 for a minute. Keep your finger there in 2 Corinthians. Turn to Mark 12. This is the story of the two widow's mites. Which sadly has been abused by a lot of churches. We're going to start at verse 41. He, that's Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. Doesn't that sound very (laughs) unchristlike? He's just sitting down in the treasury watching people give, he knows what everybody has. He knows how much they have, and he sees them putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. I'm sure they were all excited about that. You know, Jesus, in castigating the Pharisees, said when they do their giving, they blow a trumpet. They make a big presentation. They want people to know that they're doing their giving. So he said, when you do your giving, do it in private, because your father knows He sees in secret, and he will reward you openly. So anyway, he sits down. He watches the rich people give their money. Verse 42, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to about a cent. She gave a penny. Okay, so let's say you're just sitting around GCA one day, one morning before service. And somebody walks over to the box, and you just happen to be paying attention. And they walk over, and they put a penny in the box. What's your first thought? I saw that, Jeff. I saw Jeff Gaffaw. Yeah, what are you going to think? The first thing you're going to think is, cheapskate. Because all these people are giving large amounts, according to Jesus. He's watching rich people put a lot of money into the treasury. And then a widow comes and puts one cent into the treasury. Now, that makes no difference to the treasury. That does not enrich the temple at all. They are not waiting for that penny to go buy another animal. They're not enriched at all by her gift. And yet, she felt the need to give it. And of all the people who showed up with their large gifts out of their plenty... The only person we still remember and still talk about is that widow. And you know why? Because Jesus picked her out and said this. Calling his disciples to him, which means that Jesus wanted to make a big point of it. He called his disciples over and said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury." Okay, so now one cent is more than the people who were giving plenty, people who were giving large gifts, people who were blowing trumpets, people who were, look at me, and I'm rich, and I'm well-to-do, and I'm putting a large gift forward to the temple. Jesus says she gave more with one cent. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all. All that she owned, all she had to live on. So what is that penny to her? To her, that penny is her livelihood. That's her whole life. And she put the temple of God ahead of her own well being Consequently, Jesus would point her out, and we're still talking about her 2,000 years later, because what she put in was everything, and everybody else who were so proud of the largesse of their gifts were giving out of their surplus. It didn't hurt them to give that money. Look, if Bill Gates gave away a million dollars, he walks through the door right now, and he says, I'm giving GCA a million bucks. Does that hurt him one iota? No, not even close. (laughs) (laughs) Wise boy. No, that doesn't hurt him at all. Nothing changes in his day-to-day life. Nothing. And so while it would be a generous gift that he might give to charity and people would say, oh, look, Bill did that, It, it counted for nothing in his life. But if somebody comes in here who's jobless, who's poor, who barely has enough to eat, and they come make a gift to God? Don't you think God appreciates that gift much more than he appreciates the gift that comes out of the surplus? That's what I'm getting at. Jesus eulogized the woman who gave everything even though in monetary value it was nothing because she gave all she had. Now, I am not, nor is Paul, you can go back to 2 Corinthians, I'm not arguing that you ought to give all that you have, because in a minute, Paul is going to say that. He's going to say, if you give all that you have to the saints in Jerusalem, then they're going to be rich, and you're going to be poor, and then I'm going to have to take up an offering from Jerusalem to come take care of you. So that's not what I'm asking for. What I'm asking for, ultimately, says Paul, is just fairness. Fairness. Just that you take care of each other so that nobody within the church has any lack because it is a blight on a church if there are well-to-do rich people in the church and there's somebody sitting in the corner who's suffering, who's getting nothing. Because I don't care how much theology you know. I don't care how much doctrine you can recite. I don't, to, don't care how many points of the five points you can explain in detail. If you're not willing to take care of your brothers and sisters, then the Christianity that you're professing still hasn't gotten down to your heart, still hasn't affected you on the level where you're willing to sacrifice the way Jesus sacrificed. He was rich. He became poor so that we could become rich. And that, Paul says, is the example. So Christianity ought to be a great deal more than just the intention to do good. It ought to be a great deal more than just standing up here saying, well, the Bible says that we should be generous. Paul says, don't just intend it, do it. All right, so now we're back in 2 Corinthians. Verse 12, we've gotten one new verse so far this morning, and I'm hoping to get all the way through chapter 9. We've got to move. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. Do you get that now? Do you see the example of the widow's mites? Do you see that God, who knows what it is he has given you, knows whether you are giving out of your abundance and your surplus or are you giving sacrificially verse 13 for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction it's by way of equality at this present time your abundance being a supply for their that's the jerusalem saints for their want that their abundance, which is their spiritual abundance, they are the, the first and the earliest church, they're the people out of whom the gospel has flowed into all the Gentile nations, so it is out of their abundance that they have supplied for your want. What you needed most, he is saying, what you Corinthians needed most was the gospel of Christ, which came to you because of the saints in Jerusalem. But the saints in Jerusalem have a need financially, and you have surplus. So they're giving you out of their surplus of spiritual well-being, you can afford to give to them out of your financial well-being. That's a fair exchange in Paul's economy. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their want... That their abundance also may become a supply for your want, that there may be equality. That's twice now that he has said that this is about equality. It's not about afflicting people. It's not about saying, you know, you're just not doing enough because you have not made yourself poor in the way that you've helped others. But Paul's thinking is, and I have seen it for more years than I can count. I keep using this phrase, you can't outgive God. Because the God who knows how much you have is the one who supplied what you have. And if you use what He has supplied you with in order to accomplish the things that He desires to have accomplished like taking care of others taking care of the gospel ministry being generous with what he has provided for you that same God who gave it all to you in the first place can give you more he knows what he's doing how rich did he make Solomon he knows so Paul says it's not for the purpose of your affliction so that they can be at ease I'm not saying give them a whole bunch of money so that you're afflicted now because then they'd have to give to you because you're the afflicted ones. What I'm looking for is equality. Verse 15, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little had no lack. Now this is worth going and looking at because it's in a fascinating place. Turn to Exodus 16 for a moment. Keep your finger there in 2 Corinthians, go to Exodus 16, second book of the Old Testament. God's still amening his word up there. I think at this point I know what the thunder said. Said amen, I could hear it. Did you not hear it? Let's start at verse 8. What's going on outside that everyone's looking to their right? Oh, well, look, it's pouring down rain outside, so you have nowhere to be. You don't want to go out in that. You don't want to go deal with that. So we'll just stay here. Till the sun shines. Till the sun shines, I'm with Gladys. Okay, we're going to start in verse 8 because this is the point at which God gives the children of Israel manna to eat every day. Now, pay attention to this because this is God truly, genuinely providing for his people. And he provides for them as much as they need for the day. And every day for 40 years, he gave it to them provide 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 this is god genuinely demonstrating the fullness of his provision for more than a million people and what do they have to do to eat every day because don't forget in the middle east especially back here you have to find food every day there's no refrigerators it's hard to keep food fresh every day job one find food It doesn't matter how many pockets full of gold you have if you have nothing to eat. And they're out here traveling in the wilderness together looking for food. So what does God do? He provides for them every single day the one thing they most need. He provides food for them. Again, starting at verse 8, Moses said, this will happen. When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning, for the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. Do you remember the grumblings? They were thinking back to those fine old days in Egypt. Back when they were slaves. Man, we had, we had plenty to eat. We had leeks and garlic and things to eat, and now we're out here in the wilderness, and we're hungry. God brought us out here to kill us. Like that was God's intention. That's what I'm going to do. I made all those promises to Abraham, and I'm going to bring you out here into the wilderness, and then I'm going to kill you. Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? And that is what the word manna means. We're getting up this morning and we're eating, what is it? (laughs) For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. So some people are going to go out and gather a whole bunch. They're going to say, well, there's six people in my tent. I'm going to need at least six omers. So they're going to go out and they're going to gather a lot. There's going to be people who say, I'm by myself. I'm alone in my tent. I don't need six omers. I, I only need a small bit because it's just for me. Okay, this is the beginning of the concept of those who gathered much They never had too much, and those who gathered little had no lack because God was creating equality within the camp because of the manna that came down every day as he fed all his people. The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. And when they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, And he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. So do you understand the brilliance of what God is doing here? He said, I'm giving you bread every day. You need to measure it by the omer according to the number of people in your tent. And the people who gathered for six or eight people, by the time they all got done eating, there was no excess. And if it was a poor person living by themselves in their tent and they went out and gathered and measured by the omer, they had no lack. They had plenty to eat. God was creating food equality within Israel, demonstrating that the good and the giving God knows how to give everybody exactly the portion that he intends for those people so that there is no lack and no excess. And then Paul picks it up and says, And if you have excess, give it to those who have lack, so that there's equality, because that has been God's intention from the very beginning. And Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. And they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. And when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Okay, so this really, truly is genuinely heavenly bread because this is bread that even knows what day of the week it is. This is bread that knows if it's Friday or not. If you take too much of that bread so that you can store it up for yourselves, gee, if the bread doesn't come tomorrow, I better have some excess for me. So if you go get some excess that you haven't eaten, that you're holding on to, the next day, it's full of worms. You can't eat it. But if it's Friday, and the next day is the Sabbath, you go out and collect twice as much, and the next day, no worms. The bread's still good. This is really, truly, genuinely miraculous bread, because God knows how to provide everything you need as long as you put him first. If you put him first and kept his Sabbaths, he'd make sure you could eat on the Sabbath. If you didn't trust him that the bread would be here tomorrow, he made sure it was no good the next day. This is a God who knows how to provide everything you need. That's all I'm saying. Look, a God who can do that can take care of your electric bill. A God who can do that knows if you're in financial trouble and you need some help. And the means, the method that God most often uses to bring that help to you is the people of God. That's why I tell folks all the time, all the time, I'm not a mind reader. So if you have a need, say so. There's no shame in telling the people of God that you have a need. If you tell us, we can help you. And it's actually the grace of God that allows us to help you. And it's the goodness of God that has given us the means to help you. And so all of this is done for the glory of God. And that is proper biblical giving. Does this make sense? Yes. Okay. We're back in 2 Corinthians. We're never going to get through chapter 9. but <laughs> But now Paul is going to talk about logistics a bit. Starting at verse 13. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction but by way of equality at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their want and their abundance also may become a supply for your want that there may be equality as it is written. He who gathers much did not have too much and he who gathered little had no lack, but thanks be to God who put the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. Now he's going to start talking about Titus and the other disciple that he's sending with Titus so that they can build up their offering before Paul gets there so that when Paul gets there there doesn't have to be any gathering. There's already a gift that he can come and he can get and he can take it to Jerusalem. And he said that Titus is already involved in this. Titus has already seen you. Titus is already planning your gift. And he said, and that's God. That's God who has laid it on Titus's heart to encourage you to make sure that you participate in this gracious gift. So Paul gives God the credit for everything. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he has not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. I didn't tell him to go. I didn't tell him to go do this. He wants to come back to you. He wants to establish the gift. He wants to make the collection so that your gracious gift can go to Jerusalem. And here's how that's going to happen. Verse 18, and we have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. We don't know who that is. Paul doesn't tell us who that brother is because apparently he's going to be carrying this letter. And so in as much as he has the letter from Paul, Paul can just refer to him as the brother that you all know. He's well known among you. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of God himself and to show our readiness. I, I really appreciate verse 20 Taking precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this gracious gift. In other words, Paul is saying, this brother who you know, you know him well, you know his reputation. He's going to travel with me. The churches have said that he should travel with me because I have collected money from all the various churches. And I don't want anybody to say Paul is walking around living off the gift that you all gave to the saints in Jerusalem. So he said, I'm going to have this brother with me because we're going to keep each other honest. We're going to trust each other so you can trust us that we are treating your money appropriately. And the reason I said I like that verse is that that's something that we've just always done here at GCA. Wherever the money is concerned, it's always two deacons. It's always two people who take care of it so that nobody's ever tempted you know, gee, there's, there's some cash in here. Nobody'd ever know if I stuck this 20 in my pocket.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. So
0: <laughs> just checking to see if you'd flinch. <laughs> no, we've just always made sure that everything we do is, is on the up and up so that nobody has to be afraid that if they put money in the box that that's going to Jim's wild parties because you know how fond I am of wild parties. If I could get a nap, I'd be happy. That's that's, that's, that's what I'm really after here. No, we're just really careful to make sure that everybody knows that we administer God's money as stewards of God and that we recognize that it is God's money. In fact, Tom and I have talked many times over the years that when people have come through the door and said, I have a need, can you help me out? Can you get me some food or some gas? Or, they usually are asking for cash, which we try not to do. But we've had people who really genuinely had a need through the years, and we've helped them with their need. But we've also had people who we discovered had, had hoodwinked us. We found out that, okay, they, they were acting like they were poor, and they weren't. And uh, I'm thinking of one particular guy now who just really got the better of us, Well done, you. I still remember his
1: name.
0: I do too. I do too. Because when we went to his apartment after buying him more groceries than we had agreed to buy him, after he had filled up his shopping cart, we followed him back to his apartment. And meanwhile, his wife was working the Catholic charities who were also there paying the rent. And we walked into the apartment and their refrigerator was full. And so, okay, 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 we got hoodwinked. Okay, fine. And you know what Tom and I said? It's God's money. God knows. God knows that that guy just cheated us. And God's going to provide us plenty of money so that the next person who has a need, we're going to help them too because this is God's doing. So Paul has that attitude. This is God's money. We need to administer it as if it's God's money, so we're going to have more than one person watching the money so that nobody can be tempted by the money. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We, we are doing this for God's sake. We want to be honest men before God, but we also want to be honest men before people so that people know that they can trust us with their gifts. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things. But now, even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. Now, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. And as for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches. And a glory to Christ. Therefore, knowing all that, knowing the people involved, knowing that there's going to be a bunch of us who are going to travel together with this gift. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. So apparently when he was in Macedonia, he had been boasting about the fact that the Corinthians had already decided they were going to give this gift, that it was going to be a generous gift. I've been boasting about you. I don't want you to be embarrassed by the fact that I've been boasting about you. Now stick with me for just five more minutes and we're going to get to a stopping place in 10 more minutes. So stick with me this next 15 minutes and we're going to get to a place where we, where we can just stop after 20 minutes. So just... Stick with me here, because after Paul has said all that, I want you to hear that whole chapter where Paul has just encouraged their generosity, and he's talked about Christ, and he's talked about the manna from heaven, and he's talked about equality, he's really made a very solid argument here for the fact that the Corinthians ought to be involved in this gracious gift of God And then he says, but it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry to the saints. Superfluous. I don't really need to do this. I didn't need to write the whole previous chapter. But apparently I felt I did have to write the whole previous chapter. But then he turns around and goes, oh, but, 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 but listen. I know your heart. I know you're going to give. I know you're going to do the right thing. For I know your readiness Of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So now he's saying the fact that your readiness to give the gift and give the abundance and be so generous, the fact that you've already determined to do that worked as an inspiration to the poor churches who gave far more than they were able to give. That's Paul's way of going, I'm not saying, you know, that you ought to be really abundant and generous here, but, you know, the poor churches gave a whole lot more than they could afford because I told them about you. So now don't embarrass yourself. But I have sent the brethren that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case. That as I was saying, you might be prepared. Lest any of the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, then we, not to speak of you, should be put to shame by this confidence. So Paul is saying, I've been bragging about you. I've been carrying on about you to the churches of Macedonia. And if some of those Macedonians come with me when I come to you to get the gift, if you're not ready, if you haven't taken up that collection, if you're not prepared with the gift, and if it's not a generous gift, then you're going to be embarrassed. And that's not good for you. Any less me. I don't want to be embarrassed by the way I've boasted about you, and then to get there and find out that you're not prepared. And that's the reason that I am sending the brethren to encourage you to prepare the gift. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren That they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. That the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. That's a really, really interesting phrase. Let's put it this way. At the beginning, like an hour ago, I asked you all if you have ever been in a church where you felt pressure to give. And pretty much all of you raised your hand. And when you feel that pressure to give, what's the first thing you think about? You think about your money. You think about, well, this is my money, and I worked hard for this money. And you're trying to get my money out of me. You're trying to pick my All right, guilt me into it. All right, here, here's my i Okay, I'm, you teach I'm supposed to tithe. All right, I'm going to write that check. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to give. And all you're feeling as you're doing it is not joy. It's not grace. All you're feeling is covetousness. All you're feeling is that, all right, I'm going to give because I got to. But all you're thinking about is the money you're giving. And how little can I get away with? And how little can I get away with? And it's not about grace giving, it's about giving by compulsion. So Paul says, so I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift that the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully now the sowing and reaping theology has run rampant among the name and name it and claim it people and among the word of faith people and they have taken that phrase if you sow if you sow bountifully you're going to reap bountifully and and they have used it as a inspiration to give so that you can get paul isn't saying that he's saying give because christ gave give because it's a gracious thing to do. In response, God will care for your needs, and he's going to extrapolate on that, and we'll look at it next week, because I really am done. (laughs) You laugh at me. (laughs) And Paul is about to say, like I said earlier, that one of the few places in the Bible where you see a genuine eulogizing of a kind of person that God loves. God loves a cheerful giver. That's the King James translation. I'll tell you now, it's the Greek word hilaros. It's where we get hilarious. And and God loves cheerful, gracious giving. Therefore, I conclude, and we're going to talk about it at some great length next week, that the New Testament is not taught giving under compulsion. That the New Testament church is not taught giving Because there's a uh, weight on your shoulders that if you don't give, God's gonna get you. God doesn't need to blackmail you to get your money out of you, He will take it away from you. He will give you bags with holes in it so what little you have fades away. He knows how to make you broke and He knows how to make you rich and He knows how to teach you lessons about your money. He does not need to blackmail you to get your money. Your money does not improve him one iota. He owns everything. He doesn't need your money. You need to learn to give. And next week, we're going to start right there, and we're going to apply the things that Paul has said to the modern, current giving environment, and we're going to learn more about what genuine, gracious giving actually is. And we will talk about the fact that if you give graciously... And generously, God who provides everything will provide for you. That's what Paul says. Questions? No. Nothing? Okay, now, I think because I taught the first half of chapter 8 last week that the reason so many people are missing this morning is because they knew I was going to continue <laughs> talking about money. <laughs> and, uh, and so they boycotted this week. And so we're going to trick them and talk about it next week, too. And we'll show them. <laughs> In fact, they have to give a double portion. We're going to get them. No, no, no. Say goodbye to the Internet folks. Bye, Internet Say goodbye to Susan. Bye, honey. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join
1: us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.